He is a warrior in a wasteland without mercy. He has survived where countless others have died. Good shot, huh? He has destroyed all that would kill him. He is the only one who can face the challenges of... Dungeon Master. You are a worthy opponent. I don't believe this. The Excalibrates. Discover the secret of the Statue of Stone. The ungodly demons of the dead. The trap of rats spit the slime ball. The ordeal of the ice monsters of doom. My legs are frozen. I can't move my feet. The attack of the samurai sentinel. The treachery of the monster of good and evil. A warrior trapped in a timeless void. Locked in mortal combat against the overlord to the agonies of strange beasts and lost souls. Prepare for the end! The Dungeon Master. Rated PG-13. Prepare for wizardly combat. I want to show you a trick mother showed me when you weren't around. Welcome to Spellburn, a podcast covering the Dungeon Crawl Classics role-playing game and old-school adventuring. It's time to party like it's 1974. Today on Spellburn, your intrepid hosts take a look at monsters in DCC. From a look at some of our favorite monsters in the core rulebook, to making monsters mysterious, and even a look at incorporating the monster alphabet into your game. With me tonight are Judge Job. Greetings, Burnites. And Judge Jen. Hey, guys. Okay. Uh, with that, let's go ahead and roll it on over in the Tavern Talk and see what we've been up to in gaming this week. And the first rule of bartending is this. GBTB. Go beyond the book. Go beyond the book. What do you have? Heineken. Death. Tavern talk. Okay, so, Jen, let's start with you this week. What have you <laughs> been up to in gaming this week? Um, this week, uh, bit of the same. Uh, first Ed. Metamorphosis Alpha and uh, ran DCC recently. Um, Going to be out of town for the next couple of weeks, so we're kind of wrapping up on on 
everything but DCC, apparently. We've got a big, huge, wide-open cliffhanger where they're just kind of in the middle of a combat and everyone had to leave. So it'll be really fun picking up. Yeah, sometimes that's fun to leave them at a cliffhanger. That, that works well sometimes. Yeah, and, and in four weeks, everyone will get back together and say, where the hell were we? Okay, there is that. There is that <laughs> if there's that long between sessions. But I used to like end, ending on a cliffhanger, but of course, it's usually just from week to week doing that. So, Right. So cool. So, Job, uh, let's see. I think you had a paranoia game that was supposed to happen, driving trip. Oh, Ooh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that was an epic game. Um, we played at this dude, uh, Kurt's house, and uh, he he lives, like, right on the um, on the river so that was pretty cool it has like really nice view and uh we played uh i think that was like one of the introductory adventures out of the core book for first edition uh paranoia and uh i since i was kind of working with the dm we um i actually uh we had pre-gens for everybody but i was one of the npcs and i just used their uh character sheet so i was actually <laughs> winch g i was uh g level security um uh, security clearance and, That's uh, pretty high. Yeah, yeah. So I was kind of sort of in charge, and um, I tried to kill a bunch of people um, so that I could go back and say that, you know, they all screwed up the mission and died. And um, But I got mine in the end, unfortunately. <laughs> <laughs> Did they all gang up on you? Uh, sort of. I guess everyone's gang up on everybody, you know. It's paranoia. But it was of a course. blast. It was a blast. We had someone that had never even played or even heard of it there. And then, um, oh, my God. The best part, though, was I think I told you before these guys were uh, that we play with are, um, we knew each other from high school. But they actually all went to elementary school together. And so we were in the, the neighborhood that they all grew up in. And uh, so inside the Paranoia box, they had all their character sheets from, you know, 30 years ago in there. And oh, fun. This one guy, David, was there, and he, you know, none of them remember any of the stuff. Like, they remember playing it once, but apparently, you know, there was enough material in there. They must have been playing it a bunch of times. Um, but he wrote this whole um, introduction of, you know, what is Alpha Complex and all this stuff. And uh, so then he, he actually ended up reading that um, when we started out because, of course, I forgot the uh, the player guidebook. Um, where. <laughs> Where there was some more of that information, but anyway, epic game it was lots of fun, and uh, you know now I'm just getting ready for Gen Con and then Dragonflight the week after. How about you, wow. Jeffrey? Nice. Uh, so we had a couple of real life events come up, so we didn't get my Labyrinth Lord game off yet. Um, still got it prepped, ready to go. We ended up doing a. A couple of people missed vacations and some other stuff, so we ended up just playing some board games and stuff like that. So not a whole lot to report. Looks like hopefully this Thursday, though, we'll be we'll be good and get our first Labyrinth Lord game uh, session kicked off, and we'll see how that goes. So not a whole lot to report for me this week. Do you have any plans for Gen Con? Are you going to be able to make it? I'm not. I don't think I'm going to make it. Uh, some other things going on around here. It's just been crazy busy with with just a variety of stuff. So it looks like I'm going to miss this year too. Ew. Unfortunately, which oh, was sucks because it's actually on a weekend that doesn't conflict with what it normally conflicts with. But it's just it's just not looking good. It's so. been a crazy busy year. We get it. It has. It has. But I'll definitely be thinking all you guys out there having fun, and I'll be living vicariously through the G-plus groups as uh, I watch all the cool pictures come in from the games people are out there playing. So definitely post those pictures and feedback out there. Oh, yeah. You know, the other thing I was going to mention is I'm bringing my uh, 
my middle daughter, Nita, to Gen Con this year. Very cool. So if any listeners see uh, me walking around with a, a skinny little girl with long hair, um, just come up and say, all right, Nita, and give her a high five or something. That's cool. That'll be fun. Her first convention or no? Uh, it's big her first one Gen Con. Um, yeah, we've only gone to PAX and then played games at PAX, so I don't think that really qualifies as a gaming convention. There's too many, too many video games there. Yeah. But yeah, this is going to be your first one. Cool. That should be a lot of fun. Oh, yeah. Okay. So let's go ahead and summon some emails. You've got mail. Message for you, sir. Summon email. The following emails have been edited. Okay, we put out a call for emails, and we definitely got several emails that came rolling in, so we appreciate that. Um, If you do want to email us, you can contact us at theband at spellburn.com. We always look forward to hearing from people. So with that, uh, Jen, do you want to start us off? Sure, we actually have emails. We have new and recent emails, which is even more important. (laughs) Yes, we do. That's pretty awesome. (laughs) Um, The first one we're grabbing here comes from Dylan. Uh, Judge Dylan here in England. It's really good. uh, Great to hear the podcast again. I ran a DCC campaign for a while with my regular group, stringing the modules together in a loosely fitted campaign where I could find themes to connect. Unfortunately, one of the players hated the funnel and left the group till it was someone else's turn to run something. He said all I wanted to do was kill the characters. Indeed, I did find the DCC approach to mortality liberating, letting the dice fall as they may, but only because it allowed the story to unfurl organically instead of the preset railroad I find with, uh, we'll, we'll say, unnamed games here. Uh, unfortunately, that's what my group likes, starting out at level 1 and sailing through an epic to level 20, and I doubt I can get them to try DCC again. One of my players reflected that the high mortality rate in DCC means it doesn't have the stability necessary for an epic campaign. Rather, it ends up being a fantasy soap, where characters come and go and any story arcs are lost in the chaos of spell misfires or even a TPK. I loved running DCC, though, so what are your thoughts on those issues? Well, that, that's a, it's a pretty big uh, field to cross there. Um, yeah. I, how how would you address that, Job? I don't know. I mean, I'm I've been in the situation before. There's you know some people who like this kind of uh, a certain kind of gaming, and some people who like another kind. So I, I wouldn't say that one is you know better than the the rest. I can have fun doing either one, but um, for me, obviously, you know, my tastes lie closer to DCC's style. Um, you know, anyone talking about story arcs, just immediately my eyes kind of roll back in my head and I want to fall asleep. I mean, to me, that says that the players aren't going to have much control and they want the, they want the judge to sit there and, and tell them the story. You know, that's As com- opposed to cooperative some- storytelling? Well, yeah, and yeah, and I'm going to say not even cooperative storytelling necessarily, but like, you know, the players can actually do whatever they want and affect the world. You know, a lot of people running published adventures in newer systems that we uh, will 
step around delicately. Um, <laughs> you know, there's you know, this this whole plot, and then it's like a you know a mini series instead of a soap opera, I guess. And you know, having stepping through someone else's mini series just doesn't appeal to me personally. Dylan, you're in a hard spot there. I mean, you can always say, okay, well, you know, when have you run run the the game that you want to run then, and and I'll play in it if, if it interests you or not. I don't know. I don't know. What would you say, Jeffrey? So I guess uh, as someone that's run a full DCC campaign, I think th- that it works quite well. I think it can work well for campaign play. I think a lot of times we get stuck playing a lot of, uh, not stuck, but we play a lot of con games, funnels, and that's how we introduce a lot of people to it. So I think it's sometimes DCC gets the stigma that it's all funnel all the time. And it's not. If you keep going beyond, like I said, my experience, I've seen up through about level two, it can be pretty deadly. You have to play pretty carefully. Sometimes that wild, crazy thing happens and, you know, a character dies or something like that. But after that, um, I think it starts to stabilize and it makes it tough to, uh, it's it's much harder to, to get killed. I mean, we went many sessions without someone dying. Sometimes you get close and that's helped keep it fun. Uh, but I, I think it can lend itself to campaign play. It's different. Like you said, it's not a pre-written story. Uh, so you do, you know, the DCC is full of go quest for this or that spell misfire means now you got to go take care of this. But the story sort of unfurls organically, like Dylan says, which I think is a lot of fun and can be played through higher levels. And as far as the epicness of it, I would just sort of challenge this group, go listen to the DCC uh, actual play podcast that's up over at Iron Tavern. And <laughs> uh, just a plug there, but I mean, yes, at the end, excellent. I mean... There's all sorts of epicness in that uh, to, you know, that'll challenge most any of the systems that shall not be named. But, uh, but yeah, I, I think there's an opportunity for campaign play. DCC can be deadly, but I think as it progresses, it it is able to be used for campaign play fairly successfully. So that's yeah. my thoughts on it. Yeah, well, I mean, once you're getting two, three death saves... After going down, I mean, it's kind of gets gets to the territory of being pretty pretty difficult to to kill you. Yeah, we used to have a, I used to have a very difficult time and shoot some of the higher level stuff. The only reason people probably weren't you know able to come back from being dead was because they were buried underneath crumbled buildings, and it was just impossible to get to their body in a reasonable amount of time. So, right. Well, awesome. You got you got to reach into that bag again for us, Jen. Thanks a lot, Dylan. Um, let us know how that goes. Um, let's see. Second one here. Greeting Spellburners. This comes from Judge Rock. I have a question on how to handle social checks and interactions in DCC. I find that combat is obvious. I don't expect my player to stand up and demonstrate how to do a shield bash accurately to determine as a DM whether they were successful. The game mechanics handle that. There are game mechanics for social interactions and discoveries also in the form of intelligence and personality checks. I have often had charismatic players who have uncharismatic characters use their charisma at the table to try to convince a guard or an NPC. I have had them do a check and have the player act out their convincing engagement. If they failed the check, I've replied with, that's what runs through your head, but the whiskers on your face are distracting to the guard, and all he hears is, I want to get by. And he replies, no. 
My question is in the inverse, though. How do you handle a wizard who is very intelligent and should know something, but the player doesn't? Or a player who is shyer, but their character is charismatic in social interactions? Sorry for the long question. Um, Look forward to hearing how we handle social situations. And carving off some skin to burn the answer. (laughs) Uh, I find that I have this problem often, personally. Um, I have characters with intelligence of 18 and well clearly Jen does not so <laughs> I, I don't exactly know which herbs to mix with which for that effect uh, so I think that's where the the mechanics really are necessary what would you guys say Jeffrey? yeah I, yeah I can see that um I don't know I I try not to do the roles unless I need to so or I'll just do hints and sort of Feed the feed the person along. So, or if it's non consequential, then it's just yes, your character knows what herbs to mix because that's just you know they're intelligent enough to know that. But um, you know, if they're trying to be a, some social interaction and the the player is not necessarily the most uh, shy and introvert or something like that, I like to try to get to try to make some pitches at least give me an idea of what they're doing and then i'll sort of maybe modify the role based on that but you know some people are really good at play playing their character and being charismatic and then in that case i make no roles and just just go with it i guess but for the the shire introverted i like to try some interaction and then but if it comes down to it hey you know if they're playing this very charismatic character then then you know i let a role happen that's what the roles are there for um you know that's what the dice are there there's that's why some some mechanics are there for that, and I'll go that route with it. But it is a, it can be difficult to to handle that situation. I agree. You know, in that situation, I usually if the, if I have a shyer player, you know, that definitely does not want to, you know, try to talk like they're the their character or something like that. Um, I usually try to get them to just describe what the character's doing. If you know, if they're just not that comfortable. Most people, after time, you know, once you're playing with a, the same group for a while, kind of warm up to each other, and they they don't get embarrassed as much, or or they uh, come out of their box a little bit more. Right, right, or they're drunk, whatnot, and uh, <laughs> um, that's fair. But I, you know, I mean, yes, there there are mechanics for you know social interactions and you know various skill checks and stuff. But you know, I'm I'm kind of in Jeffrey's camp. Um, I do not demand those generally. Um, you know, if everyone's been talking for a while and no dice have been rolled, then maybe I might say, okay, well, roll for that. Or, you know, some warrior's intelligence is eight. As a player, he's smarter than this character might be. In, in some case, I might, but you know what? You know, you're going to have to roll for that because he, your character wouldn't know that. I would just try not to rely on it too much. You know, make it the exception, not the rule. That, that's actually a really good point. Sometimes it's written into an adventure that they have to succeed on, you know, this DC of a challenge. And really, it, at the end of the day, you're the judge, so it's your game. You can choose to negate that. You could just say, hey, we've, we've got a good flow here going. Why make people roll when they had a really good argument and I fell for it? Yeah, that right. means the NPC is going to as well. <laughs> yeah, I'm the same way. Or, you know, you have your warrior with 18th strength, and he's like, all right, I'm just going to kick down the door. Well, I mean, if it's a wooden door, I I, I don't care what it says in the adventure. I'm like, all right, you do it. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Yep. All right. Well, thanks, Judge Rock. Uh, don't be afraid to hand wave, I guess, is the 
summary from this one. Oh, yeah. Thanks a lot, Rock. That was a great uh, email. Um, it looks like we have one more if we're up for it. Um, it's a short one. comes from Melissa. And she starts out with a quote, I should have a plus one sword by now. When I hear this complaint, I like to remind warriors that they started role-playing with a plus one lucky weapon at first level. I then explain that if they lose the sword for whatever reason, they can pick up any mundane sword and it'll still act as a plus one. I think this mechanic is far better than buying a generic plus one weapon at the local Magic Mart. Uh, love the show, Jim will be missed, and maybe he could be a guest sometime in the future. Hmm. Well, there's an idea, Melissa. Guys, what do you think about the Warrior's lucky weapon? I know you went over it eons back in a show, but maybe you could refresh us. Yes, maybe you could, Jeffrey. <laughs> so you know exactly and essentially you know the warrior one of their the traits is a plus one luck bonus to the weapon they happen to have when they level up i believe so when they finish the funnel going to level one the weapon they choose you know that they're using they have access to they'll get a plus one to that i believe so essentially yeah that that helps make up for a potentially a slower magical progression that dcc has and encourages um and gives the warrior a bit of an edge over some of the other characters you know with their martial abilities and things like that so uh is that plus one to attack or plus one to damage as well uh rules as written i'm not 100 percent sure i remember i don't remember either i think it is plus one to attack and damage damn it well, if you want to, <laughs> if you want to find out, you can listen to episode number six, "Mighty Deeds Done Dirt Cheap," which is all about <laughs> warriors and dwarfs. Thanks, Job. There we go. My Google foo. <laughs> it's our own stinking website. Come on, yeah. Okay. Well, you know, I'm going to wrap the mailbag at that point. Thanks for the mail, Melissa. And I agree with you, Melissa. Jim is definitely missed, and uh, I'm pretty sure we're going to see him in a future episode. Yeah, I got an inkling about that, right? Yep, <laughs> I definitely think so. Okay, so with that being the end of the email for tonight, let's move this over to Mighty Deeds. Wait a second. I have an idea. That's plenty for the both of us. I move. For no man. <laughs> okay, so this week in Mighty Deeds, we are taking a closer look at Chapter 9 uh, from the DCC rulebook, Monsters. Um, and we'll also delve into some other additional resources outside of the the rule book but let's start there and one of the first thing one of the the driving forces behind monsters and dcc and uh is is making monsters mysterious um there's a lot of emphasis on there not being just an ordinary ho-hum monster but making the monsters in your world mysterious and the the chapter starts out even before it gets into some of the monsters includes uh it, it starts out with several tips and several means of making these monsters more mysterious. So let, let's start there. What are some things a judge running DCC can do to give monsters this mysteriousness or this uniqueness, this something more than just a, okay, you're fighting an orc? Well, I believe the first one they list is, is uh, the concept of the monster versus a monster. So 
you should give your monsters names. It, you know, in the example there is like the dragon, not, you know, oh, it's another dragon or just a dragon. You know, this is a unique creature that is feared and yeah, it's, this, is, this is out of the ordinary. This is not something that you see all the time. At the same time, this feared beast has a name. Um, you know, this is specifically called out in uh, like the dragon section, part of generating dragons in the in the core rule book monster compendium section is you know one of the steps is you give a name to the dragon it's shizzle or jizax or something <laughs> and I like the fact that they say for certain classes of monsters, maybe the people in the town you're in don't have a generic term for them like there's what they specifically say is there's no Minotaur. There is only Mornoth the Bullhead. Yep, exactly. Because yeah. it's not so common, so it gets that specific name for it. I mean, plus, you know, you're in this kind of medieval society. that There's not a lot of communication that happens. Um, you know, they don't have the internet. They can't look Something up this stuff. So, you they, know, everyone's got their own local beasties, and, and they don't really... There's not enough of them around that people are like, oh, yeah, that, yeah, that's totally a minotaur. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So beyond giving your monster a name, what are, what's another thing to uh, – so you say you have an, an encounter. Um, what are some things for that specific encounter you can do to maybe differentiate – to give it a little bit more feel, a little bit more depth to it? Well, you can describe it as they go in. Yeah, make it descriptive, make it visual, and – Geez, during one of the seminars at GaryCon, I, I think it was, uh, was it Stephen Chenault saying, you know, add smell to the description. You know, make it something that they'll remember for the imagery you have given them. Several shapes step forward from the dark shadows of the cave, revealing scrawny, orange-skinned man-creatures with sharp fangs and glowing eyes. And... You know, that, that's going to stick with a player much longer than, hey, you see goblins. That's so true. That, that <laughs> description is just, like you said, so much more thought-evoking and really helps slip your mind into the, into the encounter as opposed to just, oh, goblins, okay. Because if you just say goblins, your head starts slipping in, okay, the AC is probably this, they've got a little bit of hit points. But if you describe it like, like you said, those orange-skinned man-creatures with sharp fangs and glowing eyes – even as a player, you're not 100% sure what it is, and so you're, I think you're less likely to make that leap to the mechanics and turning it just into a stat, a stat game. And I love seeing the players' faces across the table as they're all just kind of squinting and tilting their heads going, what the hell are these? I, I mean, that? that's really just great advice for running any game. You know, when, you, when you're you know, playing AD&D and you see, you know, Orc in the stat block, then to just describe what that would look like instead of saying, oh, yeah, you see orcs. I don't know. It's just so much more immersive, I guess. It's less generic. Because I always like when, you know, when I'm sitting at a table and the DM's like, you know, you see these grunting, green-skinned creatures with, I don't know. I don't want to say, I was going to say pig-like noses, but then you know right away what it is. <laughs> yeah. it's like, people like to, like, don't tell them, like, like, oh, I know what that is. I know exactly what he's talking about. Right. I, you know, I read, like, uh, some of the... D&D novels for like the demon queen what is the word the demon queen or spider queen or something like that and they and a lot of a few of the writers like Richard Lee Byers and 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 some of the others 
that were doing those um, do that a lot in there where they, you know, where they describe the monster. And as I'm reading it, I'm like, oh, my God, that's, you know, that's totally a Balanoff. <laughs> I don't know. I guess I'm weird. Sorry. Not nearly <laughs> obscure enough. Is that what you're saying? <laughs> <laughs> but. Yeah, I, I think those descriptions help a lot, and I think you're right. This advice can easily apply to any of your games, whether it be, you know, an AD and D game, Labyrinth Lord, Swords and Wizardry. You know, even you can apply it to the Pathfinder and Five E games. It's a, I think it's a great habit to get into as a judge or, or a GM to use those more evocative descriptions, even if it's just two or three descriptive words instead of saying orc. I think it goes a long way to make your games a little bit more immersive than than anything else. So cool. So in addition to some of those, there's also a number of tables that are provided to help you a little bit with making things a little different. There's different tables for humanoids, undead, demons, and these can sort of nudge you in the right direction for some of this. Is there anything from one of these tables? What do you guys think of these tables? Do you think they're helpful, useful? I, uh, what do you really, think? I really like the the humanoids table because I mean there's so many humanoid type creatures. I mean if it is bipedal and it's got hands, then if if you're playing some adventure and it's got kobolds or goblins or orcs or quagoths or whatnot in there, um, you know you could just roll uh, on the the varieties of humanoids tables and just take those traits instead, and all of a sudden. If you don't call it an orc, no one's going to know what it is. I mean, like, what is that thing? Why is it purple and warty? So what traits can we get from that? Is it things like skin color or, you know, how how in-depth do we go? There's a variety of them. It ranges everything. The, the skin color's on there to uh, what kind of weaponry, which is, you know, pretty basic on that that front. But still, sometimes it's nice to have your orcs with different different types of weapons. To appearance, a uh, rather large section on appearance. Several of them's pretty cool on that. And then uh, just even unusual behaviors or other unusual properties. And by like that, you know, one of them off the tables, uh, let's see, it rides bareback on, oh, either a giant steer, bears, frogs, lizards, snakes, or deer. So, you know, just something that's a little unusual to make them slightly different. A true story that entry is inspired by Doug Kovacs' life. <laughs> okay so and then they've got tables for undead as well so you can make your undead unique either again over there we've got you know you can give them physical appearance or other various traits a couple of the traits for the undead i really like i always like swift undead ones that move faster than what people are typically used to 28 Um, days later i know i know but still I, i still think it's cool uh, or, or left for dead. Yeah. So yeah, several tables to help you if you're having a tough time making your orc unique or your undead unique. There's several tables in the book that can help you with that. Oh, and there's also a table for personality quirks for your demons too. Things like really bad halitosis or alopecia. Yes, there is such a thing as a self-conscious pit fiend with a comb over. That some of these things just stick with me. What can I say? You can, I, I can see someone just renaming this Wargamer traits as well. So, <laughs> oh, oh, Job. <laughs> so beyond that, what it, do we it's, have next? It's safe, to, it's safe to make fun of Wargamers at least on this show, right? We'll leave out Five E and Pathfinder, but we'll, we'll find out if it's. <laughs> yeah, we'll find out. Okay, 
So beyond some of the tables, there's unique powers versus spells. This sort of alludes to monsters don't play by the rules. Anyone want to go into what that means a little bit more? I see people do this quite a bit with monsters and stuff where they roll them up like normal characters and stuff like that. But I, For this one, I wrote down just a quote from the book that I thought was really good. So it said, Monsters and magic are not bound by the same laws that govern mortals. The creatures that follow demonstrate examples of this fact, and you should heed it in your own creature and encounter designs. So referring to you know the Encyclopedia of Beasts that comes afterwards. But yeah, you, it says over and over that the powers that these monsters have shouldn't be a spell or you know something that the characters can even do, probably. Yeah, they should have powers that are unavailable to the players. Yeah, exactly. Yep, and I'm in full agreement of that. I always liked it when monsters could have some special power, special ability that just really isn't attainable by the players, and that's okay because this is a cool monster that, well, you're not a monster, so you don't get to have this power. So, and, and they give you a table on the next page for it, and it could be something like the creature can cancel curses or restore good fortune or end bad luck. Yeah, it's not something that you're going to find in a scroll or in a spell somewhere. I, I agree. Yeah, I think the powers can really differentiate a monster. I always like to make my players mad with the power or something like that. <laughs> like, well, how, how can they do that? And it's like, well, they're, you know, it's, it's, they're special. But they're not PCs. <laughs> they are not. Yes. Okay. So we've got unique powers to make things more interesting. And then, you know, sometimes try as hard as you can. The players actually beat the monsters that you put in front of them. And in the event this happens, there's things you can even do to just help describe these death scenes a little more a little more interestingly, and DCC includes a table called Death Throws to sort of give you give a judge some ideas of what to do. Maybe you've got a really cool bad guy, the players finally take him down, and there's this table that goes over Death Throws. Do you guys have a favorite off of that table, page 384? I liked uh, Earth Opens to Swallow Body, then Reseals to Conceal It, so the uh, Drag Me to Hell ending. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's that's doubly mean because no loot for you guys. Right, exactly. You know, I like that. So oh, cool. So yeah, there's a whole whole list there of, to help get you thinking about ways that a creature could, could die. I think it's good for those big bad evil guys, those end encounters. Someone has been plaguing the the PCs for quite a while. If they have an interesting way to to go out, so I, I like that that's included in there. Yeah, I started using that really early on. I I really like that little table. That's given me some really good ideas for future play too. Yeah, it's it, sometimes it's a neat way to have a recurring villain or something like that. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Okay, so continuing on through, monsters do get their own critical hit tables. Uh, so let's take a look at those. They're somewhat extensive. Uh, what do you guys think about those? Well, I, I think if a PC gets a crit table, why shouldn't a monster? Yeah, I'm I'm totally for it. I I really like these uh, these entries. They just they keep the monster scary, especially the uh, the giant crit table, crit table G. Yeah, the giant one is just, it's awesome. There's so much cool stuff on the giant crit table. Yeah, I, this is why people say, you know, that no one's ever going to write like a giant series for DCC because, okay, one giant maybe, but, you know, if you're facing 10 giants, you're screwed. Yeah. So Stronghold of the Wood Giant Shaman, um, it actually refers to this crit chart sometimes um i think we're all screwed <laughs> and there's great great ones on here do you do you have a favorite jeffrey 
Oh, shoot. I, I don't know. There's so many of those good ones. I used to love to torment my PCs with them all the time. Legs crushed into the ground. The giant's blow hits the PC square on the head, driving him into the earth like a nail into a board. Take an additional 2d8 damage. Both his legs are broken, and he's propelled 1d4 feet into the ground, reduced to 1d4 inches if the surface is stone. Character suffers a permanent loss of 10 foot of speed and one agility because his legs will never heal properly and is temporarily reduced to speed of one foot per round until his two broken legs are healed. And just to give you an idea, that is only a 10 on the, I guess that's the top result on the, the crit table, but still, that's that's pretty awesome. I just love the imagery on that and that permanent is just insane. I'm I'm grinning like the Cheshire Cat here. I mean, I don't know. This table just fills me with glee. <laughs> of course, it does. <laughs> <laughs> glee for table G. But even even like the roll of one or less crushing blow, the attack inflicts uh, an additional one d8 damage, and the character's spine is compressed. The PC permanently loses one d6 inches of height. And that's just the <laughs> lowest level on this table. Jeez. Yeah, yeah that giant table's pretty impressive yeah there's also a crit tables uh, crit tables for demons undead dragons which sadly i haven't had cause to use yet it's interesting that they refer us to the pc's crit tables for humanoids with weapons and we're supposed to include orcs kobolds goblins bugbears lizard men etc in that category, so we would be flipping back to like crit table three or four or five, depending yeah. on how many hit die they have. But then there's a general crit chart for all other monster types, which I find a little interesting if ambiguous. But it's it's pretty good. I mean, you've got one where PC's Achilles tendon is torn, snaps back into his thigh, and his movement drops down to five foot, and screaming can be heard for leagues. <laughs> yeah, no. That's just midway on the chart. <laughs> Another bit of rules minutia that uh, we might want to mention here since we're talking about crits is uh, there's nothing in the book, I believe, in the later printings about uh, what monsters get crits, but what do they do with fumbles? Unless the monster is wearing armor, uh, I think uh, Joe Goodman on the forums stated that it's supposed to be a D4. So monsters that aren't wearing armor should roll a D4 for their fumbles, unless otherwise so you know, it's stated. They all roll on the same fumble chart as PCs? Yeah. And that, that's something when I was running, I always wanted to take the time to write up an alternate set of fumble because some of those are like, yeah. the, the, oh, yeah. the other monsters laugh at you. And it's just like, okay, <laughs> come on. There's, those things are not laughing at each other. But that is one area uh, I always thought could be Im- improved or a room for the 3PP to expand on some of those fumble charts. And not necessarily for each type of creature, but just, I don't know, a little bit more variety or a larger table or something like that. Because that, rolling D4 on that all the time, you got a lot of the same results. And, yeah, it gets you know, boring. Yeah. Yeah, so I, I think there's room for expansion there. Definitely. It does stand to note that a PC's luck modifier will alter a monster's critical hit. So it'll act, you know, like like on their fumbles, it'll add to or subtract, whatnot. Right, it's the um, inverse of the luck so modifier. If, right, if you have a pot of positive luck modifier, it's going to reduce the monster's roll on the crit chart, which is 
you know, moderately helpful, depending on how much luck you actually have at the moment. And if you have a negative modifier, it adds to it. Yay! <laughs> Wait, oh, outside voice, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So, after going through the charts and things, that brings us to how all encounters in DCC should be balanced. They right? what? Balanced encounters, right? No! <laughs> what? No! <laughs> <laughs> Screw that! No! <laughs> <laughs> Probably my favorite part of DCC. <laughs> yes. Very much so. Yeah. Let them learn when to charge, when to retreat, when to come back later when they're actually powerful enough to win. No one to hold yeah. them, no one to fold them. I mean, but where's my CR system and my encounter level rating? How do I know? Um, How that's... do I know what I'm supposed? What you want me to do? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I love it. The the whole se- one paragraph on balancing encounters, which essentially boils down to. DCC RPG has no such rules <laughs> beyond the generalities of hit dice and dungeon levels. Let them charge in and let them learn when to retreat and hide. So yeah, I think that's awesome. I, I the the whole balance thing. I've lost so much time discussions on balance in other games that it's very refreshing to not have to take that into quite as much consideration when you're running or playing or anything like that. Right. Yeah. All right. So, what's your favorite monster out of the core rulebook, Jen? Um. You know, it used to be the Dimensional Sailor, but since going with the uh, the particular storyline that I've got, I threw a handful of the hollow ones into a scenario in, in my sandbox. And they're really kind of disturbing because the midsection kind of wriggles. And that's because when they die, a hollow spawn pops out, and it's just this, like, mass Attacks with its tentacles, you know, from the ground. It doesn't hurt very much, but it, they sure are quick. And oddly enough, they bear a striking resemblance to the cultists in the People of the Pit. So I've kind of incorporated those in place of those cultists for the campaign setting them running. It, nice. It's been a lot of fun because depending on what color robes these things are wearing um they don't know how hard they're going to be to kill or how many of those spawn are going to come out of each one so it's been a lot of fun to play with and it's got the ick factor that gets some of the players just kind of cringing every time they come up so definitely my favorite what about you guys well i mean a lot of the monsters it says up front it's like hey we want you want your monsters to be unique that being said here is a list of common monsters <laughs> but you know it says right up you know in the up front of the book that th- this is just for you to kind of balance and you know have some kind of arsenal of monsters to work from and that you can create your own monsters by kind of looking at the power levels and powers that some of these monsters that are you know mostly they're kind of familiar you know what they have so you know that being said i don't know i think probably you know i really like giants just because they're killer and i really just like the conceptions of them um in this game but I, I think demons just slightly edge them out because there's just more uh, there's more random tables and stuff tied to the demon entry. And I just like how there's all these type one through five and oh, I guess there's above also. Um, and they have different <laughs> examples of you know who their patrons or lords might be and what they look like and some of their powers and stuff like that. So I, I kind of this the demon entry is one of the longest and most unique entries in here, probably you know, maybe second only to the dragon. 
entry, but it's, yeah, it's definitely my favorite. How about you, Jeffrey? So mine's going to sound a little mundane when I start, but just let me keep going and don't laugh. (laughs) But the giant snake, one, its artwork is awesome. Two, I think it's a great example of how you can tweak the snake to be super duper cool. So the giant snake entry lists a boa constrictor, a giant cobra, and a giant viper. And, and, you know, they've got their normal abilities, constriction and spitting venom and things like that. But it's a short entry, but later on it talks about, you know, how these cobras and vipers can spit poison. And this spittle can be a spray 30 foot long and 20 foot wide. I think that's really cool. Spitting snakes, that's just, I think, is neat and cool. Uh, I like it that you want to spice up your snake a bit, give it two heads. This is is sounding a little Freudian, Jeffrey, but continue. (laughs) So you can give it two heads, and I think that's cool. And that gets additional actions. Uh, You can give them gaze attacks is one of the suggestions. So, you know, I think this goes into the, okay, your players go in, they run into this giant snake, and no one thinks not to look it in the eyes, and boom, it's got some form of gaze attack you can give it. And then it even just touches a little bit on some magical giant snakes. It could be in like a wizard's lair or something like that. And that could be, then you get all sorts of options, you know, special armor or, you know, spell absorption or any number of things. So while giant snake sounds somewhat mundane, I like how it takes that and just with essentially three stat blocks, just gives you a ton of ideas to work with and ways to sort of spice up that snake. Plus the art is super cool. Wow. So that's mine. Totally sold me on the giant snake. that's what she said (laughs) Uh, no one's ever said that to me okay moving right along (laughs) so let's see so that's monsters and we've now killed our monster and now it's time to collect our treasure page 393 gets a little bit into some things to keep in mind when you're doling out treasure what are some of the things that are stressed in regards to treasure so treasure is given out via the destruction of monsters. Oh, I'm sorry. Treasure given out via the destruction of monsters should be reasonable in the context of the medieval economy, i.e. they should not be that extra, uh, particularly extraordinary. You know, you so should- I think that just goes back to keeping the economy of the, the world in mind that you know, these, a lot of these people are peasants. A couple gold pieces a year is a tremendous amount of money for them. So it makes sense that not all creatures and monsters are going to have a tremendous amount of gold. It's it's almost a rarity for them to have a large amount of gold. So, so you, my players, it's in the book. That's why you guys didn't get much gold. <laughs> <laughs> so I like how it stresses that local economy factor in there to not knock it too far out of scale. Right. One of the problems that I'm running into with, you know, again with running from modules though is there's almost always a magic item or three and so the players start getting that sense of entitlement with you know certain creatures always having a large amount of treasure so I've learned to start scaling it back out of the modules yeah like you said the modules and like you said if you drift into our magic item conversation from the other week mm-hmm. it's like uh okay so the treasure section says there should hardly be anything but yet i need like a million gold pieces to craft this the special uh weapon so th- there's a bit of disconnect in, in that aspect well and that that flip side is okay if they end up not wanting it who the heck is going to have the money to buy it from them right yeah so yeah, that 
I think that rolls into, you know, first off, where does the monster acquire such expensive things in the first place? Right, exactly. How is that going to affect that local economy? Like you were saying, Jeffrey, you know, in the process. Yep. So if the, if the, I don't know, if the or- local orc band has 10,000 gold pieces, it's like, how, how did they get that 10,000 gold pieces? And how long have people not had money passing through the kingdom? Uh, yeah. And, and the poor guy that buys a magic dagger off of somebody, he's not going to find anybody else that he can sell this to. Nobody else will be able to afford it. So he's going to become the next victim of theft. Yes. You know? Yeah. Yep. Well, you know, the other thing is, too, is from the description of the of the economy in the core rulebook, I would think that, because there's not a lot of money going around, that the monsters are the ones that do have all the freaking money. Right? <laughs> exactly. That explains it. Man. They're vacationing in the Caribbean and <laughs> everything Jeez. like that. I know. Uh, I, I found this section a little bit, you know, preachy for my tastes. Oh, about the treasure? Yeah. I don't know. What do you guys think? That's because you write adventures, Job. Because <laughs> you're writing those freaking modules. I sort of like it because it sort of, I don't know, I've always, I always get frustrated with the high magic, high value, lots of gold in my campaign. So I like that it essentially gives me permission to be stingy, which is cool. If you want to look at it from more than that I'm a judge and I want to be stingy, it can sort of clue me in that I should think more about my treasures and that if something does have a lot of gold and I want to give away a lot of gold, maybe that treasure stash has an interesting story behind it because it probably didn't come from the local economy. Was it some ancient civilization that predates, you know, the current kingdom's dozens and just a large amount of expanse of time? Uh, is it an alien race that they got it from? Is it, you know, it, so it to me it just gives it a little bit more if you're going to give out more treasure, just put a little more thought into it and where did it come from? And maybe that has a really cool story behind it as well. Is it radioactive and is it giving you cancer? Exactly. <laughs> it, it could be. It could be. So, Jen, did you, do you like the treasure? Do you think it's preachy or do you think it's on the mark or somewhere in between? Um, I'm going to reserve judgment for now. Ooh, okay. Wow. wow. Non-committal, Jen. Okay. I, I guess. Well, <laughs> we're supposed to be opinionated because we're podcasters. Well, it, it's... I haven't had to deal... I've specifically kept my adventuring party out of a large town, so I haven't had to deal with a glut of gold passing around yet. Got it. That's cool. That's fair. I, I might maintain this habit. <laughs> <laughs> Just because. I don't know. I mean, just as a judge, it seems like you kind of have to default to be stingy because if your players are loaded, they're just going to go to brothels and hang out in the tavern all day and not get fat and not be able to kill things anymore. Yeah. Maybe I'm projecting. I'm sorry. (laughs) Maybe we should continue. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So with that. Speaking of your brothels and your your yes, bars yes. and everything. So you need to populate your brothels and your bars and your <laughs> cities and your churches uh, with NPCs. And there is a short little section in the book called Men and Magicians, which help gives a judge a little bit of uh, a little bit of building blocks to sort of put this together. So what kind of things do we have in the Men and Magicians section? Well, I really like this section because you know if you need 
a bandit or an assassin to go collect that dagger that the poor shopkeeper's sitting on. Hey, there's stats right here. It's got some pretty general stats for things like peasants and nobles, even some men-at-arms or a knight. It's got a king if you need some nobility in your game. I think it's good for hirelings as well because, you know, there's a berserker. You can also find your friars and much like the previous statement of monsters breaking the rules, a lot of these have additional abilities, unique powers, like we talked about. So, for instance, you, the fortune tellers or your sages can assist your characters with you know, putting some knowledge out there. Yeah, there. There's a chance that a sage might know something like archaeology or mathematics, which could help with some mat- mapping or, oh, well, this is where this particular settlement was said to be, you know, hundreds of years ago. I think one of my favorites on that is the witch, because not only can they cast curses, they also have a plus eight to their spell casting, to their spell checks, for a limited list of spells. You know, these things can really throw PCs for a loop. The majority of these in the section are, I'd say, mid-level. You know, your fortune teller and your peasant are, are pretty low, but... I, I wouldn't throw a witch against a party of zeros. Yeah, no, they can get pretty powerful with their, their spells if they get the right combination of them, especially with a plus eight spell check. Yeah, it's a little it's a little wicked. They also have familiars and everything. But if you go into a church, yeah, hey, there's your acolytes, there's your friars. You know, there's a handful of peasants worshiping. And you've got that right there. You don't have to stop as the judge, to roll things up. Chances are they're going to try to kill all the NPCs anyway. So. <laughs> <laughs> one, one of the spell powers that I liked was uh, on the Acolyte, and I think a couple other ones have it, is uh, they just have harmful spell. It's like twice a day you can cast a harmful spell that does, you know, I don't know what it says, 1d6 damage or something. I thought that was cool because yeah, I've used those before in my games, and you know, each time I just kind of think, okay, what you know, what's this harmful spell? It's phantasmal um, ninja stars or something yeah yeah and that's the <laughs> thing you can you feel like it exactly moment. you can tweak it to whatever what, what fits the character it could be anything from a low power magic missile to you know uh, some flame yeah i think it's very very flexible uh, i'm a big fan of the harmful spell option and and these uh this little collection starts on page 432 i think it's a really nice little compendium of templates for npcs yeah definitely very handy I know I've mentioned this on a show before in the past, but have, do you guys know of any other books that have like a men and magicians type of section in them? Um, the closest I would think is like available hirelings. Okay. I, that's what I thought too, because you know, 5e has a very similar section. And when I saw it in 5e, I was like, this is just like DCC, but I've never seen that in any other game, but DCC. So no, and I think the hirelings that were introduced, at, at least in, like, first ed, would be through the module itself. So, very interesting note, Job. Yes. <laughs> Pathfinder has a couple books that do NPCs and stuff oh, like that. Oh, they do? Okay. Yeah. I mean, I don't know if it's in the core, but the Game Master's Guide has some stuff, and then there's also an NPC codex that has a whole bunch of stuff in it, too. But I don't know about included in the actual 
core rules per se, though. Okay, so if we stretch our sights a little outside of the core rulebook and some of the resources out there, because as we all know, DCC has a great you know homebrew third-party community to it. What are some other sources outside of the core rulebook that we might look to, especially for a person struggling to come up with a unique monster? Some people may have been playing in other games for a long time and just used to the very vanilla standard monsters, and it can take a little bit to break out of the you fight a gnoll and you fight an orc. So what are some what are some resources for a person might use, especially someone new to DCC or just looking to expand their catalog of monsters they can throw at their players? When you wrote up the show notes and challenged us to find some of these resources, Jeffrey, <clears throat> I was looking around and one of the ones I came up with, I, I came to you through uh, Raven Crow King's um, blog where he mentioned Appendix M. And I've seen this over over a bit. So it's uh, Appendix M is in monster.blogspot.ca. And basically, it describes itself as a confabulation of unique monsters for the Dungeon Crawl Classics RPG and suitable for other sword and sorcery RPGs, including those of the OSR. So this is a cool little site. It's got a bunch of monsters, uh, all unique, and they all have DCC RPG stat blocks tied to them. So if you want to see how one person does it, and there's a bunch of examples in one place, Appendix M is a good resource for that. I'm sort of really enjoying their first entry I'm looking at right now, the Wajas, which <laughs> look sort of like Jawas, and they're described as having a scavenger culture pilfering when they think they can get away with it, but always wandering and searching for discarded items. I think it's pretty cool. And they have the ability to craft golems out of the debris they collect. <laughs> so I think that's, that's pretty clever. But yeah, that's a pretty sweet site. You build adventures around that. Yes, no kidding. And they have ray guns, zap guns, sorry, zap guns, which may or may not be a ray gun, but still, pretty cool. Yeah, and the Purple Sorcerer, or the Crawler's Companion app, now generates demons and dragons on the fly for us. Yeah, yeah that's that a sweet. Times. Yeah, it's pretty cool. That makes it great for lazy judges. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, also, uh, that's... Uh, it's available online, but it was also in Crawl Number Five, Crawl uh, DCC fanzine, um, and that's the DCC Monster Helper. So um, this is over at uh, peoplethemwithmonsters.blogspot.com. Jeremy Darum, I think his name is, put together this one-page doc that you can use to convert like D and D, AD and D monsters to be used with DCC. So it's got a bunch of different columns and recommendations on how to do that. I don't want to rehash it, but if if you're looking to convert some uh, some other modules on the fly, keep on the borderlands or something. I don't know, whatever you want to run. Uh, you can just print out this sheet and kind of just run with it. So if you're like me and you don't like to do a lot of prep, then then this would be the, the place that you should check out. Yeah, it is a cool resource. It's a really quick way to stat out something. Uh, there's one. Oh, it's not online. Uh, but there is a monster resource that as I understand it, will be available very, very soon, Job. Okay. Are you referring to a Goodman Games system-neutral monster product? Yeah, quite possibly. One one with, like, letter headings. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the monster alphabet uh, is going to be coming out to a store near you very soon. Um, Yay! Woo-hoo! Finally! Uh, right? Yeah, so Joseph <laughs> said that it is gone off to the printers and i think if you are going to gen con and you're a kickstarter backer you can pick up your copy at gen con if they're if they're there i think it's like down to the wire whether they're going to be there or not but 
So don't quote me on that, but I, but I think <laughs> it's going to happen. So how hard is it to pull something from your system neutral book and slap DCC stats on it? Well, I don't know. Uh, why don't we find out? <laughs> that was more loaded than it was supposed to be. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I think what we're going to do here real quick is let's just try to mon- uh, generate a monster on the fly real quick, and then we'll try to stat it up afterwards. Before we get too far in, Job, can you just do a brief summary of what Monster Alphabet's about? I mean, we talk about because we we pretty much know what it's about. But if someone, first time DCC, due to DCC, hasn't really heard about either the Dungeon Alphabet or Monster Alphabet, can you just a brief elevator pitch on what Monster Alphabet is? Sure. So Monster Alphabet is the second book in a series of system-neutral gaming books. Um, So the first one that came out uh, a few years ago, I think in 2000. 2010? Maybe not. But uh, the first book is The Dungeon Alphabet, and that was by Michael Curtis. It's an amazing book, and I you know, picked that one up and sits on my shelf. I've got three different copies of it, including the gold foil version. Um, so one of my favorite gaming uh, books that I have, and it's full of artwork, and then there's uh, you know letters A through Z, and has different ideas for generating uh, dungeon dressing or just coming up with ideas for dungeons and adventures. So I wrote another book in that same vein, and it's for uh, creating new monsters. And there's you know everything from different kinds of monsters, just templates for monsters that you can just you know reskin another uh, monster. So like in the D is for dragon section. There's some ideas for different dragons that that you can have, and and basically the idea is, you know, when you have the green dragon, roll on this table and just use one of these random templates. Cool. So essentially, a big book to sort of add some spice and variety, just what we've been talking about to DCC creatures. Though this is system neutral, so you could do it with any system, but fits in well with a DCC game. Right. Exactly. Perfect. Okay. Cool. So what do we need to start? Yes. Okay. So. Um, one of the tables I like the most in this book, it kind of is an entry point uh, for kind of spreading out through other entries in the book is uh, O is for ordinary on page 40. So um, basically the idea behind this is that there's a big list of 100 ordinary monsters that you would normally see in mythology or other RPG game systems. And um, then we're going to uh, roll a few more extra traits and we're going to tweak that ordinary monster into something extraordinary. And then we'll uh, come up with some stats for it afterwards. So, Jen, the first thing we need is a D100 roll. Okay. Um, I've got a 51. 51. Okay. So, 51 gives us... Beautiful. A lich. <laughs> yes. Ooh. <laughs> okay. I'm enthused. So, we're going to start with a lich. And then we're going to see what we're going to what we're going to make out of this lich. Um, And so part of this too is, um, you know, we're starting with the lich, but it might not necessarily be a lich, but the idea of, you know, an undead spell casting type of creature or something. So definitely get as creative as you want with this. Um, It's just supposed to kind of stretch your, stretch your imagination a little bit. And it's all with what we're, what, what, how you put these disparate elements together. So now I need to, uh, a D3 roll. Okay, two. Okay, so what we're going to do is we're going to roll uh, a D, 
D22 twice. Okay. And then I'm looking at this little table, and it's going to direct us to go to other pages in the book. So and let's I do have it. my nifty D22. I have a 17 and a 16. Wow. So a 17 gives us resistance, and a 16 gives us revenge. Okay. Okay. And since I know this book... <laughs> um, it's gonna be kind of kind of weak. Let's do it. Let's re, let's re-roll revenge. Do one more. Um, fifteen. My uh, die seems a 15, little biased. Fifteen quills. Okay, there we go. <laughs> okay. I think resistance and quills on a lich are gonna be pretty good. Okay, so let's start first by going to page uh, Q is for quills. All right, perfect. So we need a D eight roll. Eight. Okay, so an eight says uh, the damnable creature's quills are tipped with barbs. Roll a d7 again on this table for the actual appearance of the quills. A successful hit with a quill attack also grapples the target until they can disengage the barbs. Okay, d7. Okay, lucky for you, I have one of those. Uh, Three. And a razor sharp spikes lurk just below the beast's coat of shaggy fur. The beast excels at grappling opponents (laughs) and paling them repeatedly. Oh, jeez. Parbed quills, shaggy coat. Okay, this is shaping up to be interesting. And impaled. We're going to have to get someone to draw this for us, right? (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so now let's jump to the resistance page. R is for resistance. And we need a D8 roll. Uh, Six. Six. So the beast's hide is pocked by craters the size of a clenched fist that are connected to a pocket dimension. The Jeez. beast lives in symbiosis with a hideous abomination that lives in the demiplane, the mutated bastard progeny of rutting lesser gods hidden away from the prying eyes of the pantheon. The abomination ever hungers, fin tendrils and skeletal ten-fingered claws launch from the craters to make quick attacks against adjacent opponents. So okay. we have a, um, I don't even know what the hell to... You wrote it. Dimensional crater, <laughs> crater creature. And then uh, it's got some ideas here. It's basically, it says, you know, roll, roll a d6 one per, once per round, and it tries to do different things. So a one through three is a slash where it tries to it make two claw attacks. Four to five is a snatch. It grabs a tendril around your arm or leg, and uh, the target's grabbed. And then it can try to drag you in later. And then or six is pilfer. It tries to grab a random item and drag it back into the pocket dimension. Oh, that's fun. Okay. So that could go in with the, the bear hug as it impales you. It steals something. Right, exactly. Hmm. Okay. okay. So uh, so now you guys figure out, how, what are we going to do this? We've got a, a lich with a shaggy coat that <laughs> conceals barbed quills. <laughs> and there's also fist-sized holes in its uh, in its body that are connected to a pocket dimension and another creature reaches out from there and, and attacks. Jeez. That I, is I, a pretty bizarre creature. <laughs> it sure it, is. Combined with the undead spellcasting of a normal lich, um, I would say this is downright horrifying. Yeah, whoever wrote this book was really messed up. Right? <laughs> Sick individual. <laughs> so that's a really great taste. I like it. So... But obviously, that is a creature that is out of the norm and would likely 
I mean, shoot, just the shaggy quill-like lich thing would give most players pause, and then when these traitor right. creatures start reaching out, that's you know, that's gonna be what you may make them think this is not a balanced encounter. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't know what, what where would this thing be from? I, I'm kind of thinking it's like something a dimensional sailor might run into. It's some undead creature that roams the you know space between dimensions or something. Or one of the undead sailors was grabbed by it and er, grabbed by another one and kind of comes back as just a little not right. Yeah. Oh, maybe there's a dimensional sailor inside. That's the the dimensional creature. Oh, there we go. That's awesome. (laughs) It's trapped inside this this, uh, void lich. How about a void lich? Does that sound okay to you guys? (laughs) Voidlet sounds yeah. good. Um, okay, so we uh, so it's got properly disturbing. I don't know. So let's let's make some quick stats for this thing. Oh jeez. Now, is there a lich in the core rulebook? Do you guys remember? Mm, I don't think so because they tried it. The undead are supposed to be a little different. more unique. Yeah, yeah, a little more unique. Yeah, there there actually are no stats for. Devils or golems or liches, lycanthropes. A mummy's pretty close. What do you guys think? Sure. Yeah, that could I, work as a base. Why not? All right, I'm just going to copy paste the mummy stat block and we'll just start from there to make something weird. <laughs> okay, so we got a void lich and then, you know, the mummy is uh, a knit zero. Yeah, but this thing's a void lich. I, I think it can move a little faster than that. All right, I think that sounds good. How about a plus two? Yeah, yeah, I think that that work. Okay, so a mummy's got to attack as uh, a choke and a club attack. So I think we want to do a. What do you guys think? Probably like a kind of a claw attack. Yeah, for the grasp. Yeah, we'll just say um, a claw attack does. I don't know a d six. I kind of want to sure. give it like, some kind of bonus though. I mean. Well, yeah, the the quills will probably be the the special. Yeah, I could spend all night writing down the uh, the stats for those quills. So, cool. We could get this statted up and post it alongside the show, and then someone can draw us a picture. Oh yeah, that's a good idea. Yeah, we shouldn't drag this out. So we'll go ahead. And we're uh, that's just kind of where we're starting off here, and then uh, we'll go ahead and, and create a, a stat block for the void lich and kind of draw uh, write up a, a short little description of it. Yeah, that'll be fun. Yep, I think that'll work out well. Just an example of how. Online resources, things like the Monster Alphabet, things like that can really help spice up your creatures to make them completely different than what any of your players have ever run into before. So you can have a lot of fun with it. And as you see, we were starting to head off on using a mummy and and modifying that. And so if you are in a hurry or, or working on doing something, that's a great way to do it. What's this creature close to? Take those stats and then just tweak them as you see fit. Oh, it should have this special attack, make it a little stronger, you know, a little... Any number of things you can just sort of adjust up and down, so... Uh, great way to go. So I think that about wraps up our look at monsters in DCC. Hopefully you found it helpful. And let's go ahead and take this over to Patron Bond where we rate monsters in DCC and the DCC approach to monsters. Who are you? Your new lord and master. What orders from Mordor, my lord? Oh, don't trouble. One thing I can't stand, it's people groveling. Sorry. Patron Bond. Okay, so we've taken a pretty 
good look at monsters in DCC. And this section of the show is where we sort of give a rating of a critical hit, hit or fumble. Um, I think for the purpose of context for this, it's essentially what do we think of monsters in DCC? Do we think the the way it approaches it is a is a good way to do it? Do we wish it was done a little differently? Do we wish there was more tools, less tools? Uh, what do we think? Uh, let's start with Jen. What do you think? The way the monsters are presented and stat blocks, etc. Critical hit all the way across the board. Awesome. I, I, I will be succinct in that one. Yeah. <laughs> now, I was going to say, I was, I, was hope, I was hoping you had an opinion, that's for sure. <laughs> I, I don't think there's I any... had opinions. I even <laughs> had favorites this time. So there. <laughs> yes, you did. Yes, yeah. you did. I don't see any reason to drag this out. It's a critical hit. I don't, we've already stated for the last hour what, why. <laughs> <laughs> so, and I'm in agreement, critical hit, uh, it was obviously able to pick up. I like the approach to DCC monsters. I like that they make them different, make the experience immersive, and don't be afraid to have fun with it. So yeah, critical hit from me as well. Okay, well that wraps up the show for tonight. Thanks for listening in, and uh, send us your emails, and we'll see everybody next week. Thanks for listening, everybody. Thanks, guys, and be sure to check the website for those Void Lich stats. You've been listening to the Spellburn Podcast. Bumper music is provided by the band Glitter Wizard and is available at glitterwizard.bandcamp.com. Follow the show on Twitter at Spellburn and on our website at spellburn.com. Email questions and comments to theband at spellburn.com. Thanks for listening.